Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Friends in Fiction Show. I'm Kristen Harmel. I'm Patty Callahan Henry. And this is Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support independent booksellers, authors, and librarians. On this week's show, Patty and I are thrilled to welcome bestselling author Tommy Orange to discuss his new novel, Wandering Stars. The book was released just this past week, or just this week, actually, and we have the feeling that this is going to be the talk of the literary town. I don't think you'll be able to escape it no, wherever you you're go. going to be hearing it everywhere. Absolutely. I know. And then you'll say, I heard that on Friends in Fiction. But first, I, we have a couple exactly. quick reminders <laughs> to check out all the fun things on Friends and Fiction at friendsandfiction.com. You know that we are an incredible community, and there you will find our show schedule, details on upcoming in-person events, and links, link, not licks, links <laughs> to our... We're recording really early this morning, as you can tell by the rising sun. Um, You'll find details about our upcoming in-person events and links to our bookshop.org page and the official book club with Brenda and Lisa. You'll find our merch store, our book subscription box, which is coming up, you guys, um, with Christy and Mary Kay's new novels and our weekly email newsletter. In other words, if you want to know anything about Friends in Fiction and we have a lot to know about, just go to our website at friends and spell it out, andfiction.com. Absolutely. Now let's welcome Tommy. So Tommy is the best-selling author of There There, which was a finalist for the 2019 Pulitzer Prize and also received the 2019 American Book Award. He's a graduate of the MFA program at the Institute of American Indian Arts. He was also a 2014 McDowell Fellow and a 2016 Writing by Writers Fellow. He is an enrolled member of the Cheyenne and the Arapahoe tribes of Oklahoma. He was born and raised in Oakland, California. His new novel that we're talking about today, Wandering Stars, was just released this week to great acclaim. In fact, while he's not here, so we can talk (laughs) about him behind his back, I'm going to read one of the glowing blurbs about the book. The 2022 National Book Award winner, Tess Gunke, says of Wandering Stars, here is something rare, a novel as generous as it is genius. The care coursing through these pages, care for people, care for art, care for truth, is nothing short of radical. Orange writes with a historian's attention to detail and a poet's attention to language, animating every passage with an energy that only he can conjure, transfixing and transforming. Wandering Stars is not just a book. It is a creature made of song and blood, multitudinous and infinite. This novel is alive. That uh, that blurb is like more beautiful than what 
I know, I know. Can I steal it and pretend it's about mine? Beautifully written and and absolutely true. So we're so excited to talk to Tommy about it. So Sean, can you bring Tommy on to join us? Tommy, welcome. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Oh, thank you so much for being here. We're really happy to see you. All right, so let's get started. So Wandering Stars is the follow-up to your acclaimed debut, There There. And in the book, you trace the legacies of the Sand Creek Massacre of 1864, as well as the Carlisle Indian Industrial School through three generations of a family. Can you talk to us a little bit about what the book's about and about the history behind it? Sure. Um, yeah, so it, it started off as kind of a straightforward sequel um, following the aftermath of the end of There There, this shooting at a powwow. Um, and um, I was actually in Sweden for the Swedish translation of There There. Mm. And I was at a museum. Um, they had invited me, the people that brought me to Sweden, uh, my publisher there, invited me to a museum because they had a Southern Cheyenne um regalia just you know they had our stuff <laughs> basically um and so i i saw this newspaper clipping um uh, about about um southern cheyennes in 1875 in st augustine florida where i actually am right now um the book um sort of brought me here for a thing that i'm doing later um and i hadn't been able to visit um because part of what happens in the book is uh there's prisoners of war at a prison castle called Fort Marion, uh, but I'll get to that in a second. Anyway, so I, I knew enough about uh, my tribe's history to know that we were we were never in Florida, as far as I knew. Mm-hmm. Um, so I fell down this rabbit hole, and um, I didn't know how it was going to fit with the book because you know we're talking about this deep historical sort of unknown part of history, um, and there there is a very contemporary novel. Um, just about the, everyone going to a powwow. So um, I'm doing research and I see this list of prisoner names oh, wow. um, and two of the names, uh, one of them was Star and one of them was Bear Shield. And Bear Shield's the name of a family from there, there. And I knew immediately that it was going to be a sort of lineage that leads up to what happens after uh, the powwow. So there's a lot of things I needed to figure out to make that work. Uh, and yeah, that's part of why it took six years to write. So we start off um, at the Sand Creek Massacre, and a young man escapes from that and ends up at this prison castle called Fort Marion, where Richard Henry Pratt is the jailer. Um, based on the three years' experience with the prisoners of war there, um, where he Christianizes uh, and teaches them English and uh, militarizes them. Um, he decides to make the what becomes the boarding school. So the Carlisle Indian Industrial School comes out of that three-year experience, except instead of doing it to prisoners of war, he does it to children. Um, and so we we follow this family line leading all the way up to the aftermath of the uh, of the powwow from the first book. And um, we just follow the, the first book had a lot of different characters. Uh, we just follow the one family this time and sort of. Uh, sort of harrowing tale of uh, addiction and um, this family trying to keep it together. Oh, that's amazing. So um, essentially what you've done, which is genius, is it's a prequel and a sequel, right? Yeah. We I, don't, I don't know how you did it, but you did it. And I'm always fascinated by 
the origin of stories and to know that you wrote that book and then saw their names on a plaque is chill bump synchronicity. So that's amazing. Do you think readers need to read them in order to understand them or it doesn't matter? Well, um, I'll just say quickly, when I saw the names, um, I like immediately started crying. Oh, it wow. Was, it was that, it was, I it had was chills that, you just know, you that, describing yeah. it. So, yeah. Um, so my editor, uh, who I love, um, Jordan Pavlin was very good about, um, guiding me away from repeating myself and from, leaning too much on the first book. Uh-huh. So, um, for reasons that I'm not entirely sure about, um, I think the literary world doesn't necessarily like sequels in the Marvel sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you, they don't want you to have to read the first one. And I'm sure that has to do with sales because they don't want to burden readers with the idea that, Oh, I've got to read another book just to read a book I want to read. <laughs> so I'm sure that's part of it. Um, but I also did, I didn't want to write the same book. I didn't want to write the same kind of book. Um, you know, as, as authors, you, you want to keep doing new things and yeah. you don't want to, um, tread the same ground. So, uh, it's very much standalone. Uh, all you need to know when you enter the, the second part, which is the sequel part is that somebody's trying to recover from a shooting. And obviously we all, uh, sort of have somewhere living in our imaginations, the idea that there's a shooting and you have to recover from it. And um, so that's, that's really all you need to know from the first book. It's such a subconscious, I think you, uh, everybody's has these very certain fears and because of shootings happening all over the news, I think all of us have this subconscious imagining of what it would be if you were in the room or if you had to recover from it. But when There There came out, which it's about to do, there was a great profile of you in the New York Times, which said, as Native writers, there's a certain feeling that you have to set the record straight before you even begin. It's been told wrong and not told so often. So why is it important for you to return to the past in order to discuss the present and the future? And do you think that view impacted the way you wrote this new one, Wandering Stars? You know, I, I really was sort of anti-historical fiction, <laughs> not for other people, not for wait, other people. Wait, Tommy, just... you come to the wrong place. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I appreciate it as a form, um, for myself, for myself and for, for native stories, yeah. yes. because we, we can all agree that it's been overdone. The historical part has been overdone and on purpose, uh, they want to keep us as this sort of pilgrim friendship meal scene and they don't really if you you know in schools they don't really update you this 400 year old history about a meal is what you get and there's no updates along the way Um, so I I didn't want to you know keep doing what had already been done to death and and it's really damaging to native people to only think of themselves in their own imagination as historical and uh, so I the reason that I wrote this history piece is because my tribe was sort of at the center, um, of the origin of the boarding schools, which went on for, uh, you know, almost a hundred years, this idea that, that native life ways are less than Mm. and forcing, you know, Christianity on people cutting 
hair. It's still done in some schools. I, I think in Kansas recently, a student had I to cut their that. hair because it was too long. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, it was my tribe's history, and and I that's part of why I wanted to tell it like that. It's also sometimes there's a burden of um, authenticity that lies on us. Yes. That like what makes you what makes you a real one instead of one of these pretendians or you know elizabeth warren having a family story but you're not really a real one is the feeling that that you get sometimes from people i've actually been asked like when i when i first started the book tour for there there a person was in line to get the autograph and uh they, they asked what the book was about explaining about native american people in in oakland and and she said are you and I said, yeah. And she goes, well, how much? Oh, good Lord. And so there's this idea, yeah. there's this idea that like people aren't. So I, I wanted to write about this history of eradicating our culture and our, and our connection to our life ways and to our mm-hmm. languages. Um, because you have to understand the context of us trying to reconnect or not having a connection to our culture. You have to understand the historical context. Yep. So I really wanted to lay that foundation out. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Yeah. You know, I think as Patty and I, Patty, would you agree with me that sophomore novels, writing your second novel, it's just a notoriously difficult thing to do, right? I mean, because you've... I almost just didn't do it. I was like, I did it. Yeah. I proved myself. I'm done. Swish, swish. I will tell you, my second novel was the most difficult one I've written. And it was because I think there's just so much pressure on you after the first, and you've been living with the first for such a long time. But Tommy, not only did you write this incredible second novel that follows the first one so well, but yet, as you said, can be read separately. But you went from having a contemporary story to having a story set uh, at least partially in the past. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between writing the two novels? I I think I've read that both of them took you, I think you just said a moment ago, this one took you six years also. I think your first one also took you about six years. Was the process similar or was it, did you have to basically reinvent the wheel to write this very different kind of book? Yeah, it was different. Um, and yes, sophomore, the sophomore novel, uh, was, it felt impossible. (laughs) Um, and, uh, I almost just wanted to rush something out that was, that would just be bad, like almost purposely bad (laughs) to get it out of the way. (laughs) Um, so I, I had to immerse myself in research and, while I did research for there, there, not very much of it ended up in the book. Oh, um, okay. I really drew, I drew a lot from personal experience. I worked in the native community in Oakland um, for almost a decade and I was born and raised there. And, you know, I, I'm a native person, so I can write from that perspective. I, I worked in a digital storytelling um, all around the country with all different kinds of people, native people and, and um, other marginalized groups that don't often get to tell their stories. Um and so I was pulling a lot from from my experience in life for for there there and even to some extent to the the second half of this book is is not research based, um, but for the, the historical piece in Wandering Stars, I read a lot of books um, and I you know I I not that much historical information ends up yep. uh, in my writing because I I write from the inside out and I and I have a lot of interiority. Um, so, but I, but in order to convince myself that I, I can write inside somebody's heart and brain, I have to know what their world was like. So I read a lot of books and that part of the process was, was much different because I, I really needed to understand the context. 
It's interesting you say that. Uh, Patty and I have both made the switch from contemporary. We both started off our careers writing more contemporary fiction set in the modern day, and now we both write historical fiction. And I think one of the tricks to writing good historical fiction is knowing what to leave out. Like you as the author know a thousand times more than you're ever going to put on the page. And I think you make a mistake if you, if you put you know too much of it, if you're like, look what I've learned and you just want to share all of it. So um, it, it sounds like you nailed that balance perfectly, like just enough background to put us there, but you're right. You're in the hearts and the minds of your characters, which I think is, uh, is one of the reasons, um, that both of your books, I think have resonated, uh, so much. Um, I'm wondering whether you felt like it was difficult to follow up such a tremendously successful debut. I I can say that as difficult as my sophomore novel was, my first one was not actually nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, believe it or not. (laughs) (laughs) But you, I mean, your first novel came out to such great acclaim. So did you feel pressure to live up to this very high bar that you'd set for yourself? And did that, did that hold you back at all? Absolutely. Um, yeah, the feeling is part of the sophomore thing. Um, I think is you have you feel like you have to write something as good or better, and so depending on how well your first one did, that's how high your bar is set. And um, I think I can say um, it's pretty objective yeah. at this point uh, that the the book did really well. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> so there were there were there was a lot of new critics and voices in the writing room with me. Um, but my, my worst enemy is still, uh, was still the same one. This, the, the doubting hateful person inside that makes me want to stop writing. And that's the, you know, that's the only thing that, uh, you have to beat is, is to make sure you don't stop. Um, and find, find ways to work even when you don't feel like it, even when everything is telling you that you shouldn't or you can't, um, so even though there were new pressures and new voices um, of doubt, it was still me I had to get past in order to to write something that 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 felt true and and real. Do you think that having done that, having found your way to that, having found your way past those voices, do you think that'll make the writing of your third novel um, a little bit easier now that you've proven to yourself you can do it? I do. I, I and I sold my third book uh, at the end of last year. Congratulations! And. Um, I'm like a hundred pages oh, in, um, and and it's not related to the first two books at all. It's 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 a contemporary um, book, and uh, I am finding it um, easier um, just having gotten past, gotten through that really difficult um, second book uh, thing. Well, that's awesome. that sophomore thing. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> so I think it's Stephen Pressfield who called you know who says that resistance is quite literally, a force that keeps writers from doing their best work. The voices of doubt and the voices of, you already did it once, you can't do it again, nobody cares. And I think every time we overcome that resistance by just sitting at the page, even a terrible page, is a day that story wins. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that part of being and a writer as a career is the perseverance through yeah. those voices and resistance yeah. um, more than anything else. But back to you. <laughs> as is the case with There There, Wandering Stars unfolds from multiple perspectives. I've read an interview with you in which you've said that one of the reasons you like writing from so many viewpoints is that you enjoy reading books that are written that way. 
And don't we always kind of, doesn't our work grow out of the things we love yeah. the most? But it's also because you come from what you call a voiceless community. That feels really profound and also sad to me. What has it been like for you coming from a community that hasn't been adequately represented? And how is your work addressing that? So, you know, it's it's a much different context. Um, well, I'm going to go back to, to the thing that you were just saying about doubt, because there's a piece of uh, writing advice that I heard um, along the way that I, I can't remember who said it, and I wish I could attribute it uh, to them. But I think it's, it's really good advice. Um, sometimes your best writing will come on your worst days. Yeah. And I, it, it was really helpful to me because I, you know, you feel like you need inspire to feel inspired to get the good writing. And sometimes you're having a, an amazing day and you feel totally inspired and you look at that writing the next day and it's horrible. Yes. Um, so it's just hopeful to the perseverance part, uh, to know that on your worst days, you can really write well. Yeah. Um, our perspective is not yeah. right in the middle of it. We don't yeah. have any, yes. we don't have any perspective of what coming out in the moment of whether it's working or not until later hindsight. Yeah. 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 Um, so the, it's a much different context, um, in 2024, this idea of, of voicelessness. Yeah. I think we can all kind of agree that there's, um, yeah. a lot of amazing work coming out of, of native communities, um, here and in Canada. Um, I think the publishing world has changed. Um, you know, we, we got two TV shows on major networks, um, Rutherford Falls and Reservation Dogs. Um, the Killers of the Flower Moon uh, is, you know, it was nominated for 10 Oscars. Um, so I think it's a really hopeful time um, for, for Native Voices. And um, I wasn't writing from the... It, from the same place of, of the feeling like we don't have a voice or we're not mm. visible or not, we're not represented. Um, just as I, I was, I was writing with an audience knowing that an audience would be there. And that's a totally different Oof, feeling too. Uh, you know, when, when I was writing there, there, I, I had no concept of like, there will be readers, you know, I had an MFA program. Um, and my, my biggest hope uh, with there, there was the director of my school said, if I publish a book, anywhere he'll give me a job a teaching job and that was what i wanted <laughs> Tommy, that's I amazing I would, yeah i i figured i would make my students read my book <laughs> and my my colleagues would pretend to have read it um and that would sort of be you know the extent of my audience so that's awesome yeah <laughs> so writing for within knowing that there'll be an audience even if, you know, it's the spectacle of, of sophomore effort, like they, they want to see you fall or succeed either way is interesting. Um, <laughs> is sort of the, the, the spectacle of the sophomore effort. Um, so, yeah. so, so it was, it, it, it was, I was writing from a much different place and I, and it feels really, um, empowering to have all these different artists from native communities, uh, creating amazing work. It, it feels, uh, it, there's a, there was a sense of power in, writing what felt like from a lonely place. Yeah. And there's also a sense of power in feeling like there's, there's a lot of us doing, doing the, this good work. Wow. Almost like you're adding now to adding to the chorus, right. Instead yeah. of like this lone voice yeah. in the wilderness. It's beautiful. Yeah. You know, and, and Tommy, I, I'm curious, 
just thinking of it that way, obviously they're there was a big part of sort of this big cultural yeah. revolution Shift. that we're in the middle of right now. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about being one of the forces that changed the way that changed the way perhaps we're seeing Native American communities, that changed the way we're consuming this art, to change to changing the way we're we're perceiving these stories as, as a nation. How do you feel about by kind of being on the ground floor of that? I mean, my first instinct to answer the question is to go, go the route of like, it wasn't me. I didn't do, uh, you know, um, but I, but I do I, from a pragmatic place, um, what you create with success is, um, now editors or people acquiring manuscripts will take risks on native people because of the, the success of their, there. And we do work in an industry. Um, and, and these, this industry affects other industries and taking risks on native stories because, because clearly there is an interest. I think, you know, I'm going really pragmatic here to like analyze why it works instead of being like, it feels great that I had a big influence. Um, because that's, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable I saying that. Um, but it, it's, you know, if there's any effects of that, my, my success can produce, um, opening doors for other people, yeah. um, is an incredible one. And I feel so grateful to that, that my book had the ability to, to change things. And, um, and it, you know, there's a lot of people before me who, uh, allowed um, my success to be possible. And, you know, a weird thing about um, the timing of their, their success. Um, I feel like I, uh, this new sort of what, what's been called native Renaissance happened right after um, standing rock. If you all remember yes. in 2016. So it was a really scary time. Um, um, Trump just got in and Standing Rock, Rock happened yeah. and a lot of people were kind of looking for um, answers to the question of like, well, what's happening to Native people? Because we, we, we were on this national stage, you know, yeah. people were praying for clean water and getting yeah. sprayed with, you know, hoses yeah. and dogs were being sicked on them. Um, so timing uh, had so much to do with the success of there there. And I don't know who to attribute contribute that, you know, is that fate? Um, I don't know, but all, all of it is to say, uh, I am grateful that, that, um, that it, ha that things have changed, that the landscape has changed. And I, and I just hope that it, it can continue to, because we, we have native renaissances because we have deaths of interest in native issues and we shouldn't have any more renaissances. There should just be a sustained like presence. Absolutely. Oh, I love I that. Think I think too that when we're trying to answer a question that 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 is that nuanced and that complicated, it's not an either or. Like it wasn't just your book, yeah, and it wasn't just the Renaissance. It was a and both, yeah. And no doubt, yeah. your book played an incredible part in that. So it's great to be humble, but also it's an and both. 
And and we're we're allowed to say it, even if you don't want we're to. Right? We're allowed, we're allowed to yeah. say that Tommy Orange is leading the charge. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> so Tommy, one of the questions we often ask on the Friends in Fiction show is how your childhood experience around reading shaped you into the writer that you are today. But I would love to take that question a step further and ask you not only about your exposure to books as a child, but also about your exposure to two very different cultures. So we've read that your father spoke Cheyenne as his first language and was a Native American church ceremony leader. And your mother was, in the words of the New York Times, a, quote, wandering hippie and spiritual seeker who converted to evangelical Christianity and denounced your father's religion. How do you think this complex past influenced you as a writer and a, and a reader? Um, I'm glad you took the question further because it would have been a short answer to how books influenced me as a kid because I wasn't a reader oh, until okay. I was like, okay. until after college, which which sounds weird, but my undergrad is in sound engineering. So I was in studios and we didn't read any books uh, for that. I was in, and this was in 2003, 2004. So I was learning analog recording to tape. It makes me sound very old, um, but uh, it was just, a totally different college experience. Um, so my childhood, yeah, my childhood, um, with sort of religious fanatics, um, very much shaped the reader I eventually became. Um, mm. so yeah, my mom and dad met in a, um, at a peyote commune in Northern New Mexico. And, um, my, they, they eventually moved to Oklahoma where my dad grew up. Um, and he was, um, at the time, um, a heavy drinker and, um, my mom, after three years living there, was kind of in a desperate place. She actually got saved on her knees, uh, in front of the TV by a televangelist. I'm not sure which oh one, my goodness. But, but that was like when, when she converted, eventually they moved back to Oakland where my mom grew up and, um, there, it was, you know, a, a tense household. There was a lot of fighting and there was sort of a, um, there was spiritual battles. So, yeah. it, and their, their sort of, um, advice about everything was based on God and faith. And, um, there was not that much talk about the future. In fact, uh, at the church that I grew up in, it's very much like people that wanted the world to end. <laughs> I mean, they, they didn't yeah. want it, but like they wanted to usher in the new world and um, they wanted Jesus to come back. And that's all very scary yeah. for a young person. Yes, it is. Um, and also probably a reason I wasn't that invented, uh, invested in, in my own future. You know, I, did, I didn't do well in school. I, I was really sort of, I had a lot of anxiety about world actually ending. And if I oh, wow. didn't believe in Jesus, I'd... I would go to hell forever. And I, I was like really thoughtful about what that means, like suffering for eternity. If I don't take Jesus into my heart um, was like, that was a, a core concern. So eventually, you know, I, I moved away from the church. Um, I was, I was an athlete as a young person. I ended up playing roller hockey on a national level. Um, and eventually I think the fanaticism <clears throat> um, that I was raised around, I, I applied to literature and fiction. Once I found it, yeah. I, I was working in a used bookstore after, um, college, um, and, um, really discovered fiction for the first time. 
um, just on my own. The, the woman who hired me, she was trying to move two big warehouses of used books into one. I think she hired me because she could look like I could carry a lot of books because <laughs> I, I, I wasn't a reader. There was no reason to hire a non-reader, but I was curious. I was, I was yeah. starting to look for meaning and I was reading psychology and, and religious books, trying to replace kind of um, that, that vacancy of, of what, um, at w when I left sort of both of my, what both my parents wanted from me. Um, and, uh, I filled it with fiction. I was, I was literally moving the entire fiction section of a used bookstore from the back of the store to sort of more toward the front. And so I got to see a lot of books and I, and that we weren't, we didn't get that much business. So I could actually read oh, wow. at work. And, um, and I was, I, you know, I was really kind of dumbfounded by what, what fiction could do. I just, no one had ever put a book in my hands and was like, you have to read this, this will change you. Um, so it was really just like finding something that a lot of people knew existed. And I felt like I was finding, you know, finding something completely novel in novels. That's incredible. That's incredible. And it's the story over and over we hear yeah. from writers when Books you finally times. discover that there is a wider world. And Tommy, I grew up in the same, obviously I'm not native American, but I grew up in the same Jesus is coming. So you better watch out right? Like he's, he, he could come right now. And what if you're doing the wrong thing right now? And then do you remember the left behind series? Yes. Oh my God. I was like, what if I get left behind <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sitting here? Like, So I get it. And, and I got in trouble for reading too much because at least there I wasn't terrified that I was left behind, but I want to tap back to your, your musical career just for a minute, because you mentioned it and you are also a musician and a composer, just like our Sean, who is behind the scenes right now. And you have a bachelor's in audio engineering because your writing is so lyrical. I am wondering if you see an overlap between the musical prose and then what you've been able to put on the page. Do you kind of hear that prose? Does the music enter into it? I'm really curious. Well, I, um, I'm always listening to music when I write. Ah. Um, and, and I'm not sure how much of an effect that has. Um, it's, I think it's more, I'm very, um, I, I read out loud um, throughout the revision process, and I really am listening sonically to what sentences sound like. Ah, That's part that. of what what I what I'm thinking about um, in revision. I want to make sure that everything sounds like actually sounds right when I say mm. it. Um, so there's you know there's technical pieces that go into it also, and and there's plenty of revisions that don't that I'm not speaking. But as I get further into revision. Uh, I have to be reading it out loud. And I think that is a musical piece mm. that I, that carries over, but there's also, there's also the musical part of my brain um, is also separate. Like I, when I'm playing music, there's a nonverbal place that I, I that I like that. to keep all its own. So I, it, it, it does something else for me. And I, and I like to keep it separate at the same time, if that makes sense. Oh, I, I love that. that. Yeah. I like that a lot too. All right, Tommy, if you would stick around, we have one more question for you at the end, but first a few quick reminders to our listeners and viewers out there. For all of you watching, oh my gosh, 
you've had the best treat. I know. I'm just, right? I know. I just feel so <laughs> filled up. But yeah. now that you've had the pleasure of meeting Tommy, we encourage you to rush out and buy your copies of Wandering Stars. And the perfect place to do that is the Friends in Fiction shop on bookshop.org, which for those of you who don't know, we'll keep saying it. It supports independent bookstores. So not only will you get the book at a discount, but you'll help beloved independent booksellers and our show. We also want to remind you to follow us on Instagram and join our Facebook group, which is nearly a quarter million members strong now. Four years later, a quarter million members. It's astounding. When you visit friendsandfiction.com, you can stay aware of all upcoming shows, in-person events, merch, all of it, chock full of bonus content in our newsletter. Absolutely. So if you love the Friends in Fiction show, we hope you'll leave a rating or review and remember to tell a friend. If you subscribe to our YouTube channel, you can catch all our back episodes, more than 200 of them now, and you'll never miss a thing. And when you subscribe to our podcast, you can take us with you wherever you go. All right, Tommy, although we hate to let you go, but you have very important things to do today. (laughs) We have one more question for you. So Kirk is called Wandering Stars, a searing study of the consequences of a genocide. And in their Star Review, Publishers Weekly calls it a devastating narrative, saying with incandescent prose and precise insights, Orange mines the gaps in his characters' memories and finds meaning in the stories of their lives. I know you haven't read that, so we thought we'd read it to you. (laughs) So these characters feel so alive on the page, and I know that characters like that can only come from finding your way into their skin as you write. And from sitting with them and sitting with their pain, at least for a while. But that can be hard on a writer's heart. Kristen and I know that. We've written about some really tough subjects. Especially when you're tackling very heavy things like inherited trauma and oppression. So we talk a lot on our show about how writers shape their books. But I'd like to flip that around. How do you think this writing of this book shaped you? I, you know, I, I just started thinking in these terms more recently mm. about um, how, how much I use writing um, to process things. Oh, wow. uh, and, I, you know, I, I, I want to be careful around this because I don't want to make it sound like art therapy. Um, and I don't think, you know, writing is therapy or therapeutic. It, it certainly has elements of that. Yeah. But I write from a really personal place, no matter how far away the character might be from my actual experience. Yeah. And, um, there's sort of, there's two different readings that, that can happen depending on how much you know me, like my wife will read something. Mm-hmm. Um, and she'll, she'll know how recently I wrote it because of what I'm processing Ooh, yeah. in the writing. Um, so I, I think, um, I, I feel like saying this is sometimes maybe sounds annoying to some people. Um, but I, but I do feel like I need to write, um, to process the world. And I don't feel when I, when I write heavy stuff, I don't feel burdened by it. I feel like I'm doing transformative work and I'm turning something that, that when it, when it isn't said, or when it's just lives inside, it does more damage Mm -hmm. than if I can find a way to, to express it. So well put. What a powerful statement. We will be taking a clip of that. Tommy, how can people who are watching and our readers connect with you on the road and online during the coming weeks of this book launch? 
Sadly, I am a ghost online. <laughs> I, yes, we noticed that. <laughs> I do. I do have a Facebook, so um, and I, I keep in contact with a lot of people through Messenger on Facebook. Okay. And I, if um, so, I, you can follow me there, and I'll friend uh, you two after you four, Great. five, including Sean. <laughs> Great. After this. He's the coolest one of us uh, all. So. I, I know. You don't really need me and daddy. Yeah. <laughs> you guys can talk music. <laughs> are, are you going to be out on tour, Tommy, as well? Uh, yeah, there's quite a bit. Um, I told my publicist that I, um, I want to do less this time around um, and have it be spread out. And she only listened to the second part. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there's there's quite a bit well we're glad you are starting with us it's such an honor thank you so much Tommy. yeah tommy it was such yeah thank you for thank you for all your thoughtful questions and and the nice things that you said about me in the book thank you okay everybody be sure to tune in next week when christy welcomes best-selling author rebecca searle to discuss her new novel expiration dates which is adorable and funny and has this great little twist. Um, You don't want to miss that show with Christy and Rebecca. You can watch that on the Facebook page and YouTube channel on March 6th at 7 p.m. And it will be posted to our podcast on March 8th. Thank you again, Tommy. We absolutely loved having you. And thanks to all of you out there for being with us. We'll see you next time. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here.